0: Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 verses 23 to 28 is our passage for this morning. Mark chapter 2 verses 23 to 28 and the title of this morning's message is Jesus has the final word. Jesus has the final word. And we've been seeing in this great gospel that Jesus, the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, came to earth on a mission. And that mission was to preach the gospel of the kingdom by which people who embrace him as Lord and Savior can be saved from their sins, be forgiven of their sins, be rescued from the penalty of their sins. Jesus Christ came preaching the good news of a kingdom, a kingdom that he said was not of this world. And we know that right away in the gospel of Mark, don't we? Because in chapter 2, Jesus is preaching the gospel, the good news concerning himself and this, the kingdom of his Father. And all of a sudden, Jesus begins to experience growing opposition, especially from the religious leaders. Those people who should have known that he was fulfilling Holy Scripture as the Messiah, the Son of God. And so in chapter 2 of Mark, we've been seeing these last few weeks how there are, there's growing antagonism and hostility toward the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look down in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, if you remember, Jesus heals a paralytic. But the thing that really gets um, the religious leaders worked up is the fact that he claims to forgive this man's sins. Something which only God can do. And that was Jesus' point. He is God. Therefore, he is able not only to physically heal this paralytic, but he's also able to forgive this man of his sins. And then in chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, we see that Jesus reached out to this hated tax collector who was viewed by the Jews of his day as a traitor because he worked for the Roman government, essentially. And Jesus calls this man, Matthew, to follow him. And Matthew comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And then to top it off... He throws this um, evangelistic party Matthew the tax collector does in his home inviting all of his friends these uh, all kinds of wicked sinners from the perspective of the Jews and Jesus is amongst these individuals and the religious leaders take offense at this how could it be that this one who claims such things be amongst sinners in this way and then if you look down in chapter 2 verses 18 through 22 there's this question about fasting Jesus is still in Matthew's house. And what is Jesus and his disciples doing? They are feasting rather than fasting. And these religious leaders take offense. And so Jesus uses the opportunity or the question about fasting to expose the self-righteousness of these individuals. And more importantly, the fact that the reason why these religious leaders could not feast instead of fast is because they didn't understand who was before them, the very Messiah, the Son of God. The only hope for humanity. And then in chapter 2 in our text, verses 23 to 28, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we have a fourth and fifth conf- conflicts or controversies. And these controversies now in these two passages are concerning the Sabbath, the Sabbath observance. And we're going to see next week in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, that that the controversy with Jesus and these um, religious leaders focuses on Jesus healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And we're going to see that together. But in our text today, the focus is on the disciples... As these religious leaders are, Jesus is constantly, they're constantly around him. Wherever he goes, it seems like Jesus never gets any privacy with his disciples. Here are these religious leaders again watching Jesus and his disciples as they are walking along these paths. And they see the disciples picking or plucking grain on the Sabbath and they take offense. And now they're going to come after the disciples and Jesus defends his disciples and addresses their concern as well. That surrounded the Sabbath. Now, uh, a little bit of background about the Sabbath before we get into our passage. You know, the Sabbath was instituted by God. It was a very good thing in the Old Testament that got instituted for man's benefit. It was a, to be a commemoration of the fact that God rested on the seventh day from all of his labors. But it was also for, for the benefit of man, for man to recuperate, for man to be able to rest and to be able to reflect after all of his long labors. And then we see the importance of the Sabbath observance in that it was embedded into the very Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 10, we read this in commandment number 4. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And so the people of the Old Covenant, the Israelites, understood that this was a very serious thing. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, verses 21 through 27, there he records how God promises judgment to the israelites if they disobey or don't observe the sabbath in the way that he has designed for them to observe it but he also promises blessing for their obedience So no matter what we say this morning, beloved, Jesus was never undermining or dismissing the importance of the Sabbath. He, as one who was born under the law, according to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, was one who came under still the old covenant, and he himself understood the importance of the Sabbath. He observed the Sabbath. But what we see in this text and throughout his uh, the Gospels, is that Jesus' concern is to address the way the religious leaders had perverted the Sabbath. In the way that they had come to treat the Sabbath. And not only that, but in the way that they approached other people with a very judgmental, critical spirit for not keeping, not necessarily the the mosaic law and what the mosaic law said concerning the sabbath but their own man-made traditions and interpretations concerning the sabbath that's what jesus is concerned with and addressing from these religious leaders you see by jesus's day in an effort to guard the sabbath and the whole law for that matter the religious leaders had formed a hedge or a fence around the Sabbath as well, and eventually this was cataloged post AD 70, but at Jesus' day there was this oral tradition, this culture of, of, of legalism and self-righteousness even concerning the Sabbath and, and multiple violations that these religious leaders had be, had begun to to put forward and to even judge the people in accordance with or accordance to man-made traditions and interpretations concerning the Sabbath, additional things beyond what God had had prescribed. How perverted or twisted had um, this issue become or things had become regarding the Sabbath in Jesus' day? Here are some of their man-made rules and regulations um, not to be done on the Sabbath. This is John MacArthur writing. Quote, You couldn't travel... This is addressing the Sabbath. You couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet if you were traveling. Some say you can't go more than 1,999 steps. If you took the 2,000 step, you violated the Sabbath. Nowhere in the Mosaic law do we find that, right? The only way you can go further than that is if you put some food 1,999 steps away on Friday before Sabbath, and once you got to the food you'll get another 1,999 steps to either go further or to come back. This is the rigidity of this, right? If you put an olive in your mouth and rejected it because it was bad, you couldn't put a whole one in the next time because the palate had tasted the flavor of a whole olive. If you threw an object in the air and caught it with the other hand, it was a sin. But if you caught it in the same hand that you threw it up with, it wasn't. If a person was in one place and he reached out his arm for food and the Sabbath overtook him, he would have to drop the food and not return his arm or he would be carrying a burden and that would be sin. A tailor couldn't carry his needle, a scribe his pen, a student his books. No clothing could be examined unless somehow you find a lice and inadvertently kill it. Wool couldn't be dyed, nothing could be sold, nothing could be bought, nothing could be washed. No fire could be lit, cold water could be poured on warm, but warm couldn't be poured on cold. You could not bathe for fear that when the water fell off of you, it might wash the floor. If a candle was lit, you couldn't put it out. If it wasn't lit, you couldn't light it. Listen to this one, ladies. Women couldn't look in a glass, or they might find a white hair and be tempted to pull it out. Wow. Women couldn't wear jewelry because jewelry weighs more than a dried fig. A radish couldn't be left in salt because it would make it a pickle, and that's work. (laughs) No more grain could be picked um, than you could put in a lamb's mouth, and on and on the list goes. What kinds of things were forbidden? Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, sifting, grinding, kneading, baking, washing wool, beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning wool, putting on a weaver's beam, making threads, weaving threads, separating threads, making a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches. (sighs) And many other things. This is an oppressive, unscriptural, horribly ungodly, and brutally unkind um, system of traditions, right? End quote somewhere in there. This is what the Sabbath, beloved, had become during the time of Jesus. And it was oral tradition. This is what people were, the kinds of things that people were held to. Instead of the Sabbath being a blessing, which was God's original intent, as we're going to see. It had become a burden for people. And it's with this background in mind that we come to these Sabbath controversies. So look at chapter 2, verse 23 to 28 with me. I'll read it. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and how, and he and his companions became hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Beloved, as Jesus addresses the this question of the Sabbath, what He's going to do again, as we've been looking and seeing from our Lord, is that like a master surgeon, again He's going to expose the hearts and the unbelief of these religious leaders, isn't He? And as we look at this passage, I think the Lord teaches us three principles for how you and I can avoid self-righteousness and a joyless Christian life. And instead, genuinely love Him and love one another. We want to look at these three principles that you and I must be committed to living by these principles because our natural bent, beloved, is to, is to be legalistic, to be self-righteous, and oftentimes that even toward others. And in the process, we miss living the Christian life with, with joy and loving the Lord and loving our brethren, which was ultimately the intent of the whole law and the prophets, right? To be an expression of our love for the Lord and our love for one another. So we want to look at these three principles that I think our Lord Jesus teaches us here. The first principle that we want to look at in this passage is this. We, you and I, must be committed to living by the principle of truth. The principle of truth. When you look at the life of our Lord, oftentimes whenever you see our Lord addressing the issues of his day, especially controversies with the religious leaders, what he does is that he appeals to Scripture. Jesus didn't come to override Scripture. Jesus came to fulfill it. And anything that he did was consistent with Old Testament Scripture. So he appeals to Scripture. And we see that here. Here are the Pharisees walking and watching Jesus' disciples in these open fields, and the disciples have a need. They become hungry, they're famished, and they begin to pick some grain from someone else's property. But the tradition of the Pharisees and the scribes of the Pharisees basically stated that plucking or picking grain was considered work, and thus a violation of the Sabbath. And in fact, if you look at their question in verse 24... Um, the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The religious leaders aren't asking Jesus here because they're such teachable, humble guys, right? And they want to hear from our Lord truly a genuine answer because they really want the, the truth. They're asking a question that is framed as already a judgment or having drawn a conclusion against Jesus and his disciples. How could you let your disciples do that? That's how the question is framed in a judgmental way. Well, Jesus could have answered them in so many different ways, couldn't he? He could have quoted Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, which explicitly states that, that people were permitted, neighbors were permitted to pick grain from a neighbor's field to eat. The issue was that you couldn't do so in a way that would profit you. But in order to meet a human need, people were allowed to do that. Notice what our Lord does in verse 25, how he answers their question. That is framed in such a judgmental way where it's already drawing a conclusion. Look at verse 25, and this is highly significant, beloved. Listen to how he answers. Jesus said to them, Have you never what? Read. Have you never read? Almost as a saying, don't you know this that I'm about to say? And if you go with me to Matthew chapter 12, You need to keep your finger in Matthew 12, which is the parallel account uh, to this particular passage, verses 1 through 7, or 1 through 8. Keep your finger there, because we're going to keep referencing back to that particular passage. But if you go there, notice what he says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 3. He says, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? And then in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 5, Or have you not read in the law? Jesus answers their question by appealing to them on the basis of Holy Scripture. But, beloved, here was their problem. And here is the problem with much legalism and self-righteousness and many rules and regulations that we can set forward for ourselves and for others that they go beyond what stands written, don't they? And this is what Jesus wants to address that even though these guys gave lip service to their adherence to the word of God and presented themselves as the as the watchdogs of scripture of strict obedience they themselves as Jesus often told them disregarded the law by elevating their man-made traditions above God's word and even misinterpreted it for their own means to achieve their own ends they had built such a hedge of so much non-biblical man-made rules and interpretations and additions to God's beautiful law that was meant to be a blessing and a reflection of, of our obedience to, unto His glory. They had built such a hedge and an offense to the point that true, the truth had been hidden from people. Wasn't this the issue with the Protestant Reformation, by the way? It wasn't that the, tr- that the truth disappeared during the Dark Ages, Right? The truth never disappeared. It was that it was, it was hidden under the rubric of Roman Catholic tradition and interpretation. And that's why the reformers are brothers and sisters in Christ who, who weren't perfect, but God used them in a critical time in history to put the Bible back into the hands of the common folk so that they could see the truth for themselves, right? That's what Jesus sought to do even in his day. He wanted to elucidate the truth, what the truth was, and its right interpretation for people to live by so that it would be a blessing to them, and they would give God glory. You know, Jesus constantly confronts the disregard of God's word for God's word of these religious leaders. Over and over again, we saw this last week in the Sermon on the Mount, how they elevated tradition above holy Scripture. How their obedience was superficial and heartless. These individuals, beloved, were more characterized by religious formalism by going through the the external motions than anything else. And I told you last week, that is a danger for us, especially as Christians living in America. Where we are not persecuted like some of our brethren in other countries. Where we are not threatened to be put in jail because of our Christianity. Where oftentimes in practice, there isn't a dark line drawn in the sand for us to, for us to really, really stand out as Christians who are denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following after Christ. It's a danger for us to live a comfortable Christianity. A Christianity that is all based upon our desire to be secure and, and, and not have any trouble in our lives. And certainly false preachers haven't helped that, right? And so I ask you again this morning as I did last week. Are you genuinely from the heart worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Or are you resorting, beloved, to religious formalism? Where you sing songs that you, whose words you don't think about. Where you paint a picture of yourself externally as an obedient, upstanding person, but really you don't have a heart for God. You're not devoted to the Lord. Where your service has become drudgerous and a burden rather than devotion to the Lord. Think about that. Because Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, as we said last week in Revelation 3, to the lukewarm church who was complacent, lethargic, passive, You are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. I will spit you out of my mouth. That's what the Lord Jesus thinks about religious formalism. Us pretending to be somebody that we're not on the outside, and yet we don't have a heart for Him. Our obedience needs to be a loving obedience, right? A grateful obedience out of a response to His grace, His unmerited favor and kindness shown toward us in Jesus Christ. Oh, beloved, it's a terrible thing that people can do the right things externally and deceive themselves into thinking that they are okay, but God, who looks at the heart of each and every one of us, is not pleased by religious formalism devoid of heart for him. He is not. And so much of Jesus' preaching, he preached so much against legalism and self-righteousness and external formalism like that. These people honors me with their lips, Isaiah said, but their hearts are far from me, Right? Outward conformity with no heart, beloved, changes no one. God is after transformation, right? Transformation from the heart. Remember Paul? Paul in Philippians 3, who could boast in his credentials. He said, I had all kinds of credentials according to to the elite Phariseeism of my day. I had all kinds of badges of honor. I could boast in my works. According to man's eyes, anybody could look at me and say, boy, that guy is righteous. But remember what Paul says in Philippians 3, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. They are nothing. They're rubbish. He even calls them human excrement. That's how he viewed his good deeds according to Phariseeism, the strictest Phariseeism. He says, now it's all about Christ. I want to be found in him and he in me. It's a righteousness, not a righteousness of my own, but I needed an alien righteousness outside of myself. The righteousness of Christ, which is imputed, reckoned to my account. He says, that is what I boast in now. So that in another place, he said, may I boast in nothing else but except in the cross of Christ. That's what Paul came to realize upon his salvation See, this externalistic self-righteousness that Paul had before his conversion was so typical of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, who were so focused on their rules and their erroneous interpretations and their traditions that they disvalidated, beloved, the Word of God. And they fooled themselves into thinking that they had the truth and instead that they had turned their backs on God's Word. Let me ask you a question this morning. What about you and I? As you look at your life, do you live by the truth of the word of God? Truly. What drives or motivates the personal decisions that you make? What drives your family decisions? The way that you live life in your home? What drives the way that you function amongst God's people in the church? How do you function even in the world around us? What shapes or tempers your priorities that you live out, that you set for yourself? Can I ask you today, are you most concerned with what the Bible says, which is what God says, right? Which is what is reality. That is what the truth means, that in His Word we find the truth, what is truly real and meaningful. Do you live in accordance with what the Word of God says? Does God's Word inform shape beloved and even corrects the way that you think and you live and the way that your family lives and the things that you prioritize as a family let's get down to the nitty-gritty right if god's word is infallible and perfect And not our traditions and our opinions. Are we truly trusting in God that if we live in accordance with his revealed word, with his truth, that truly this will glorify him and we will receive his blessing? Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? Some of us are living this out. And even when you fail, you are so quick to, Lord, ah, give me, grant me the grace, Lord, to live in the way that you you want me to live in accordance with the truth of your word. Others of you, not so much. See, it ultimately doesn't matter what you and I think. It ultimately doesn't matter what your opinions are. It ultimately doesn't matter what your experiences have been on this earth. It ultimately doesn't matter how you've been raised. Those things, there are aspects of those things that are so valuable, especially if you were raised in a godly Christian home. But ultimately what matters is, are those ways of thinking that you have from whatever areas of life consistent with the truth of the Word of God? Are they consistent with Holy Scripture? It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what the pluralistic society around us says with various religions and multiple views about every little thing under the sun. It doesn't matter, beloved, what the so-called sophisticated yuppies on television say who are Christless and godless. They should not be shaping the way that we think. It is the Word of God alone, not a political party, not a Democrat, not a Republican, or any other party for that matter. Republican doesn't equal Christian, and Democrat doesn't equal Christian, beloved. Only the Word of God is to shape our decisions, choices, and the way that we think. Amen? Amen. That is what it's all about. Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth, Jesus said in John 17 to his father. It is the truth that sanctifies, that is, that conforms you into the image of Jesus as you, by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit of God, apply it to your life so that it changes your thinking and your priorities and your actions and the way that you love God and love other people and self, self, uh, selflessly sacrifice your time. And energy and resources for the sake of the kingdom of God. The Word of God does that, you see. It alone sanctifies. And so let me ask you this morning a simple question Do you know the truth of the Word of God and you are driven by what the Bible says? Do you spend time reading the Bible? Let's put it, let's get down to the basics. Do you practice regular Bible intake? Are you opening up your word? Or are you just depending on a Sunday morning message? Are you just depending on the daily crumb? Are you just, I call the daily bread the daily crumb. No offense, okay? <laughs> Nothing wrong with the daily bread, alright? Just go beyond that, brethren. Are you depending on the podcasts? Or are you getting into the word and really reading it and meditating upon it and memorizing the scriptures and reflecting upon it deeply for your own heart and coming before the Lord and saying, oh Lord, show me wonderful things from your word. What is it that you want exposed in my thoughts and heart and my affections, my lack of affections for you? Do you read the word? I pray that some of you are wrapping up your reading plans for this year, whatever those were. I pray that some of you are already looking ahead to the turn of the year in January, where now you're, gonna, you're excited to start yet another reading plan. To read the Word and meditate and memorize it and, and reflect upon the Word of God, not out of duty, to clock in and out of a time of devotion or quiet time every single day, but to spend time with the Lord, to see Him, to behold Him, and to cherish and to treasure the Christ of Scripture. I pray that that is our hearts, beloved, because if we are not digging into the word, then we're not going to think biblical thoughts, are we? We're going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or teaching in our society. We're going to be easily taken captive by everybody's opinion on television, by this party over another party, by this person, political figure over another political figure. Don't be naive. Get into the word of God. It's the wisdom of God, isn't it? Of course, it's good to listen to good preaching, right? To listen to podcasting, we have access to all of the greatest preachers all over the world. Do that, but don't just be dependent upon that. Get into the word yourself. Know the truth. And so, beloved, the first thing that our Lord models for us is this. Even in addressing the religious leaders of his day and their questions, in this case, concerning um, the Sabbath, he gets to the point of, have you not read? What do you know? Don't you know these things of Scripture? Is it biblical, in other words? Is what you are pushing upon my disciples biblical? Let's get into that. Now listen, the first principle we must live by is the principle of truth. The second one is this, the principle of love. The principle of love. And pay attention to this, because I think what comes next is key here. These religious leaders believed truly that they had the truth. They really did. They had chapter and verse for everything, possibly. The scribes who were the the intellectuals, the the academics, so to speak. The scribes of the Pharisees were the scholars. They had chapter and verse for you for everything. In this case, hey, commandment number four, Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, right? Keep the Sabbath day holy, and we're going to render punishment upon anybody who doesn't. They knew chapter and verse the problem, however, ran much deeper, beloved, because in their fixation on their traditions regarding the Sabbath, not only did they elevate their tradition above scripture, but listen to this. They missed the ultimate meaning and intent of the law, including the Sabbath. That's a whole different level of deception right there. They missed the intent of the Sabbath, that it was to be an expression of God's love. You know, in our church, we talk a lot about um, studying our Bibles inductively, to look, uh, and, and studying our Bibles in such a way where we are not reading into the text, meaning into the text, but allowing the, the Word of God to, to, um, to, to expose what's already there, to draw out the truth from what's already there, right? We talk so much about that. And so in the inductive study method that we very regularly practice here in our church, which I think is a great way to approach all literature, especially the Word of God, we talk about observation, we talk about interpretation, and we talk about application. In observation, you ask the question, what does the text say? In interpretation, you ask the question, what does the text mean by what it says? And then in interpretation or application, rather, you ask the question, how does it apply to me in this present context? What are the timeless principles that apply to us in this present context? And all of those steps are valuable. And you and I know this, that if we go from observation, what does the text say so quickly to application? How does it apply to me? And we skip over interpretation. What does the text mean by what it says? We're in trouble, aren't we? We're in the danger of potentially misapplying the Word of God. Listen, the Pharisees were the classic example of this. They missed the meaning and the intent of the Word of God. In their zeal to live by the letter of the law, they failed to rightly interpret the Scriptures and even added to the Scriptures in a legalistic, self-righteous kind of a way. You look at ver- chapter 2 of Mark, verse 25. Jesus answers them, and he says to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and he also gave it to those who were with him? What our Lord is referen- excuse me referencing here is 1 Samuel chapter 21 verses 1-6, through six, where David and his men, if you remember, are fleeing from King Saul. He is hostile, Saul is, toward David, jealous of him. And David and his men get to a place called Nob, which was one to two miles north of Jerusalem, where the tabernacle was at the time, at this place called Nob, And they are scared, David and his men. They are starving, they are desperate, they are famished from running from Saul, fearing for their lives, and in desperation, David, at the time, asks Ahimelech, who was the priest at the time. He was the father of Abiathar. The reason why why um, Mark mentions Abiathar here, or Jesus mentions Abiathar, is because shortly after this incident, Ahimelech gets wiped out with a lot, with all of the other priests. And who becomes the prominent figure, including in David's life, is Abiathar. That's why he mentions Abiathar here. But technically, Ahimelech was the priest that David asks for food. The only food available at the time, however, was the consecrated bread, which only the priests, as you know, could partake of after replacing it with other new consecrated bread. And that bread were were the 12 loaves that were placed on the altar for each tribe, and they symbolized the presence of God and His sustenance of His people. It was consecrated bread, sacred bread. And even so... The only thing that Ahimelech asked David in 1 Samuel 21 verse 4 is about the purity and holiness of the men. Have they stayed away from women? To which David affirms that his men are pure and the priest gives David and his men the consecrated bread. Listen, meeting their need at that moment. Meeting their need. Now notice, nowhere here does Jesus say that David and Ahimelech violated God's word. Because they didn't keep the ceremonial aspects of of that sacred bread, if you will. At that moment, the need that David and his men had was met, beloved. And how ironic would it have been if that bread of the presence, which was a symbol of God's provision, would have been withheld from his very people who were in desperate need of God's provision at that moment. And so they are provided for. See, more important than the ritualistic or ceremonial aspects of the Sabbath are people, right? People. And Jesus is going to make the point that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And if you look with me back in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 5, Matthew 12 and verse 5, Jesus pushes the matter even further. In Matthew 12 verse 5, he asks this, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple, break the Sabbath and are innocent? Notice what Jesus asks there. Look at the priests for crying out loud. The Sabbath says not to do any work, but there are exceptions. How so? Even in that day, the the exception is the priests who are doing continually the work in the Lord's temple. They are serving God by serving God's people, and that's what it's all about, right? He appeals to even the priests. The priests have an exception clause there to the ceremonial aspects. They're serving God by serving God's people in the temple. Now, notice what is more important than the ritual and ceremonial aspects of the Sabbath, beloved. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 7. Notice what our Lord says. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion or mercy and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 and saying, my disciples are innocent. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, God, through his prophet, is telling his people what he desires from them and what they haven't done in the past that has brought about his judgment. Namely, beloved, listen, that they have not shown mercy and compassion. That was their problem. And the nation was judged because of that, because of their failure to love others as well. The ritual of sacrifice and other ceremonial aspects were meaningless, listen to me, without love that shows itself in mercy and compassion. That's Jesus' point. You remember in Matthew chapter 22 verse 34, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees come together, they hate each other's guts. Whenever it comes to attacking Jesus, eventually things escalate to the point where even these guys who hate each other, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they come together and they ask Jesus a question to test them in Matthew 22, 36, and they ask him this, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says this, On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus was not saying that you shouldn't obey the whole law. He's saying, let me sum it all for you. All of these laws are ultimately an expression of love for God and love for one another, for your neighbor. That's how he summarized everything and the intent of the law. It was the principle of love, beloved. That was to motivate and shape and inform all of their obedience. And it is the same thing for us. Listen, when our rules and our rituals and our routines, listen to me, even if well intended or may have biblical warrant become hindrances to our doing good for others in a way that pleases the Lord, something is seriously wrong with our rules and our rituals and our routines. They're not infallible. They're not. Even if they have some biblical warrant. There might be those areas of your life where you have principles that you live by and they're preferences and they're good. But if they consistently keep you away from serving other people and loving your family and loving, for example, some of you men who, biblical or not biblical, I must provide for my family men. Biblical or non-biblical? Biblical. Good priority or bad priority? Great priority. Could you flesh out that priority of providing for your family in a sinful, detrimental way to your family? Absolutely. When now all of a sudden that becomes your idol and you're away from your family, and you don't spiritually shepherd your family, your wife and your kids, because you're so consumed with success and money and the accumulation of riches on this earth, all of a sudden, a biblical priority now becomes a sinful thing because you have set yourself above God's word. You see. Young moms with little babies or toddlers Biblical or not biblical priority, your husband should be in some way, shape, or form with particular wisdom uh, implemented in how what this looks like. Should your husband and your family be involved in the church serving God's people? Good priority or bad priority? Good priority. Would God bring babies to our lives that would hinder us from serving God's people in the church? Would he do that? He doesn't do that. Now, it may mean that for a time or a season of life, ministry looks very different for you. And you need to use wisdom and the godly input of older godly saints in your life to determine what that looks like. But should you be perennially, continually not serving the Lord as a family together because all of a sudden now you have babies and toddlers. See how a good biblical thing can become a sinful self-justification for us? Again, it takes a lot of wisdom, doesn't it? It isn't such a clear-cut, do this and don't do this, and this is sinful and this isn't sinful. There are some things that are wisdom issues in our life. And we need the Word of God and older godly people investing into us. My point, beloved, is this, is that in those areas and many other areas, even things that have a biblical warrant can become an opportunity for us to justify sin or a lack of service or a lack of having compassion and practicing mercy and sacrifice for other people. And we have to be careful with that. We have to be careful with that. Jesus, in the midst of pronouncing eight woes upon the scribes and Pharisees, listen to what he says to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected, ready for this, the weightier provisions of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others jesus would never ever say don't obey the mosaic law he lived under the old covenant he was all about fulfilling every aspect jot or tittle of the law he's not saying don't obey the law what he's saying is that their obedience should flow out of a heart of love showing itself in the weightier things of justice mercy and faithfulness don't miss the heart behind it he says Don't just go through the motions on the outside. It's about loving God and loving others. See, our Lord gave the Israelites precious ceremonies, precious rituals, even symbols and signs that were meaningful and sacred, but He despised outward religious formalism devoid of a heart of love. That's what He despised. Listen to the prophet Micah, chapter 6, and verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? Sacrifices were required. Shall I come to him with those? With yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? What is God pleased with all of these external things? They were things that God required of them. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. No. Micah 6 verse 8 says this. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Beloved, the Lord has never just wanted our external service or rituals. What He wants above anything is a heart that is broken before Him, reverent, heart of humility, kindness, and love for others whereby we give ourselves for the benefit of other people, meeting other people's needs. That's what the Lord desires from us. Not external ritual or formalism. Not just coming to church and not really being devoted to the people who comprise the church. Not just coming to events and then being isolated on your own, but reaching now with tender care for other people, seeing how you could be of service to other people. That's what pleases the Lord, that you would put that uh, your love for him that you claim into action and self-sacrifice for other people. Whatever that looks like, that might just mean you take somebody out for a cup of coffee during the week to just show care for them. That might mean that as you hear a service need in the context of the church, that you get yourself out there and you say to a deacon or to Ruth or whoever, hey, I want to meet that need. That's what the Lord desires of us. If we say we love Him, if we say we profess to know Jesus Christ, we must walk according to His steps, right? What did He do for us? He gave everything for us. He humbled Himself to the point of dying on the cross for sinners, bearing our sins on the cross taking upon the Father's wrath on our behalf for our sins, and then He rose from the dead on the third day, victoriously conquering sin and death, right? That is the measure of the love of Jesus and the self-sacrifice of Jesus, and that is exactly what He requires of every single follower, anybody who professes to know Him. That is not just for the committed Christian, for those who are the elite Christians. There are no elite Christians. There are only sinners saved by grace, and all of us are called to follow the example of Jesus in self-sacrificial service. Every single one of us are. That is what he desires. Forget about this external stuff. Just going through the motions. See, They had missed the intent of the Sabbath, and that's what he calls them out in verse 27 for. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath, piggybacking off of his scriptural reference to David and what happened during those days, he says, the Sabbath was made for men and not men for the Sabbath. Because ultimately, he says, the Sabbath was given by God for man's benefit. It was an act of mercy of our Heavenly Father. It was His provision for man's benefit that we would rest and have recuperation and recharging. And they had made it a burdensome thing the religious leaders had. That's what they had made it. And beloved, as Christians today, we need to be so careful not to fall into the trap of Phariseeism where we care so much more about the letter of the law rather than the true intent and meaning behind the Word of God. Let me ask you this. Are you driven by what God's Word says, first and foremost? And even in areas of wisdom or preference where God gives us liberty in in the outworking of certain principles of God's Word? In even those areas, do those areas consistently hinder you from loving service to others or from alienating yourselves from others or them from you? There are things that frankly, beloved, may have some biblical warrant, but they consistently are things and priorities that we hold up as if God, thus saith the Lord, it shall look this way. And what do we end up doing? We alienate ourselves from other people and other people from us. And they keep us from serving the Lord out of a heart of love for Him. Listen, are you consistently marked beloved by meeting needs of others, by benefiting other people, even if they're different than you? Listen, it's not just sin to commit wrong or do evil toward others. Ready for this? It's also sin to withhold good or compassion or mercy or service from other people. We need to confess both. Sins of commission and sins of omission. That's how desperately sick we are, aren't we? That's why we need a Savior. Because our sin is great, not just sins of commission, but sins of omission where we don't obey the Lord by proactively loving one another as God has intended for us to love one another. And we talk about our busyness and our schedules and this priority and that priority and all all for years and years of our lives. All we do is make, make excuses for why we don't love God by serving his people, whom we claim to be a part of. Sometimes in our commitment to our rules, our preferences, our busyness, we can withhold what is good and beneficial for other people. And God is not pleased by that, beloved. You know, and we'll end here, and we'll look at the last point next week. You know, I'll give you some examples of how what this could look like. Um, oftentimes, rules, routines, and preferences can get in the way of Even if they have biblical warrant, they can get in the way of us loving other people. Um, I remember heading to a kid's piano concert one time. When my kids were were younger, they used to have these uh, recitals, rather. And I remember that we were very early. If you know me, I'm a stickler for, for timeliness. Like, I want to be on time. I mean, a half hour early is on time for me, right? That's who you're talking about right now. So this is very humbling for me to admit right now, right? But we're heading to this recital, and we had to stop and get gas, and then we got some uh, fast food for the kids from McDonald's. And as we're getting ready to go onto the on-ramp of the freeway, there, there's this poor guy, homeless guy, who was actually sitting on the side. And you know how you use wisdom in those times, because not everybody who claims to be homeless is always homeless, right? Sometimes you're enabling them with what you give. Well, this guy was not in that situation. He legitimately had a need. And at that time, you know, I was working with Children's Hunger Fund in, near, in ministry nearby who was committed to mercy ministry and caring for poor people and all of that. And I should have known better. But I remember I was so focused on my time. I was so focused on getting there at the right time. And then my wife says, honey, do you think that we ought to give that guy a meal? And I look over it at her. I'm like, but we got the, you know, we got the clock going. No, I think this is something that we need to do. Long story short, we ended up giving, providing that guy with food. We ended up getting to the place even just, just on time. And they didn't even start on time. It was like a half of an hour that they started the recital. But at that moment, what was more important for me as a person, it was my time rules, right? Right? Oftentimes in our lives, beloved, and you can think of other examples, we are so focused on those rules that we have that are very self imposed and they're things that are good and profitable, but in the process, God might send you a divine appointment of somebody that you need to care for, somebody that you need to show compassion and mercy. And at that moment, what trumps the opportunity that God has given you to be compassionate and merciful or your time restrictions that you have? You know, some of us who have little kids. Over the years, one of the things that wise older people have told me as a dad is, hey, sometimes the best times are right before they go to bed when they start opening up their hearts to you. Those are teachable moments that you need to be sensitive. Well, campus is a stickler for time. So over the years, guess what? The bedtime for our kids was 8 p.m., and as they got bigger, 9 p.m., and now it's about 10 p.m., right? Different time frames. But over the years, beloved, there have been those moments where I could have either focused as a dad on moments where my children were were teachable and and, and they were soft and tender to talking about the real issues of life and things that were going in their hearts, or I could be focused on, no, 8 p.m., it's bedtime, right? How many of us have done this as parents? And certainly, I know that some kids can take advantage of that, right? Kids, youth, you know you've done this. I did it. Oh, I have something on my heart because it's bedtime, right? <laughs> That's where we as parents have to use wisdom, of course. But my point is this. Oftentimes we miss the opportunity in moments like that to meet the needs of somebody else, including our kids in this, in this instance, because we are so fixated on they need to go to bed at this time. And it's about my rules and they're going against my authority if, I don't, if they don't go to bed at this time. Or we start questioning the motivations of our kids or other brethren, perhaps, instead of just meeting the need, showing compassion and showing mercy. You know, there was a family at our former church who was a young family. They were in their early 30s at the time that we knew them. And they had their routines. They were very structured family. On Sundays, they would go to the service, and afterward, they loved to go out, go, go lunch uh, uh, to their house, or maybe they'd go out to a fast food place, and they would have a lunch, and then they'd love to take naps, both the husband and wife and the kids. So that they had their routine. And then they would come back for the evening service, and that was good. But you know what stuck out to me about that family? is that there were a handful of times when there was needs in the church. A person who was hurting in the church, and you know what they would do? They would bring that person along, and out went their routine, and they would just bring them along to care for them and show them mercy and compassion. I remember one guy who expressed at one time that he was totally addicted to pornography. Right after the service outside, as we're standing on the patio. And this family set aside their schedule and they took him out to sit down with him. They got a babysitter and they ministered to this guy even in that addiction of pornography because they wanted to show compassion and mercy to that guy. Oh, beloved, the Lord is so gracious and merciful to us that when we are, we are spiritually sensitive to the needs of our brethren, He's going to provide those opportunities, and it is at those moments that even if your rules and regulations and all of that may have some biblical warrant and they may be very useful and they're not sinful in and of themselves, at that moment, it is not about the ritual, it is not about your rules, it's about caring for the person who is there before you. Amen? I think that's what our Lord is talking to the religious leaders about here. This is what they had missed in their religiosity, this is what they had missed. You know, often people have asked me in the past, what are you trying to emphasize, you and the elders, to the church? And people talk about churches who are committed to the truth or they're committed to love, right? And as elders, we've talked about this. What do we want to be? We want to be committed to the truth or we want to be committed to love? What do you guys think? Yes and yes. And isn't that what our Lord is saying here? Saying, live by the principle of the truth. What does the word of God say? That's how you're going to live joyfully and in a way that honors him and live by the principle of love. What is best for your fellow brother and sister in Christ and ceremonies and rituals, those secondary things, some of which might have biblical warrant, go out the window at that moment so that you can care and love your fellow brother and sister in Christ. Amen. We'll look at the third point next week. Brother Tim Bowen, come on up, brother. Father God, thank you so much for your holy word. I thank you, Father, for its clarity. I thank you for the masterful Lord and Savior that Jesus Christ, your Son, is. And how he, Lord, exposes hearts. Father, expose our hearts today. Show us, Lord, where we are not committed to your truth. We have set certain traditions or rules, man-made things that we've created above your Word. And where, Lord, we don't practice even those things that might have some biblical warrant in a way where we are loving you and loving our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, do this amongst us, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.